Welcome, everybody. It's a privilege to be here with you today as we dig into the Word of God. We're going to be in Acts 16, starting in verse 6 today. If you want to find that in your Bibles and follow along with, uh, with me as, as I read and as we walk through this passage together. But let me pray uh, as we get started here. Father, we thank you for this time where we can join together as a church family, as the people you've brought here together today to just read your word, to study your word, to, to dig in and, and see your truth, God. And we pray that you would lead us through the work of the Spirit in our lives to understand, to see your glory in these verses today, God. So would you make them true to us? In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So Acts 16, starting in verse 6, uh, if you want to follow along. But I want to start off by talking about something else for a second here, if, if that's okay with you. Um, that is not the <laughs> passage I'm doing. Uh, we might have the wrong one back there. Uh, I can try. I mean, I think Dwayne already did it, though. Um, that's okay. We'll go there. Uh, by the time we get to the serious stuff, I think this will work out. So if you guys keep digging on that, uh, I'm going to start off. You guys are about to find out how nerdy I truly am today, so I hope you're ready because it's quite breathtaking. Um, I am the kind of person who, when I watch a movie or a TV show or I read a book, I will go onto the internet and just search for as many facts about that project that I can find. I want to know how it was made. I want to know why it was made. I want to know the details that go into it. I will go on IMDb and just look at all the trivia for a TV show or a movie. Um, and when I do that, it, it helps me to appreciate what I've just read or experienced a little more deeply. And so I really like that. It's, it's this little thing where I just need to know the trivia. I need to know the facts. I like to see the process of things being made. And one of the best examples I can give you for this in, in my complete nerddom of, of music is uh, the song Good Vibrations by the Beach Boys. That was a song I'd heard many times growing up. My mom would listen to the Beach Boys every once in a while. It was a fine song. And then in my final year at McMaster University, I decided I wanted to take a class to uh, help boost my grades a little bit. And so I took a history of pop music. Uh, I had a long history of, of researching songs that I listened to, so I thought it'd be a good idea. And the song Good Vibrations has about three pages dedicated to it in the textbook that I had for that class. And I got to see the process behind that song and it made me appreciate it in ways that I never thought I would. You see, the song Good Vibrations is what Brian Wilson, who wrote the song, he calls it his pocket symphony. A symphony is a classical, uh, uh, it's classical music It'd be four parts, and it would take like a whole night. There'd be these four parts of music that kind of come together, and you'd go through these movements, and each movement's different. And Brian Wilson, when he wrote Good Vibrations, he decided he wanted to take all the ideas of a full orchestra, a full symphony, and put it into a three-and-a-half-minute song. And so when you listen to that song, you probably don't notice until you read these things, but you go back and you listen to it, and it starts off with the first section, which is the normal pop music thing. Verse, chorus, verse, chorus. But then it switches. The entire tone changes. Different instruments get added, and all the instruments he uses in here 
are incredible. He uses like a, a mouth harp. He uses a theremin. He uses all these incredible instruments. But the second movement, it just changes completely. And then in the third movement, all the music just drops down, and then it comes back up. He put all of these little ideas into it. Uh, in the choruses, the first choruses, we have the music. It kind of starts off low. There's one voice, and voices get added. And each time they say good vibrations, it kind of moves up a tone. And then by the time you get to the last part, the last movement, the chorus starts off at the top and it walks back down. And there's all of these little details in the song. In fact, the way that he did this, it's from the 60s, is he took each movement and recorded them separately and then cut the tape. And then he would take those individual pieces of tape and he'd literally scotch tape them together in different orders to see how he wanted that movement to go. So it's like cut and paste, but for real life, not on a computer. And he would just put it, and then he'd run the tape through. The song Good Vibrations is known as one of the rock pop songs that made people take popular music seriously. He spent about 90 hours, 90 hours on one song alone, and it cost, in the 60s, about fifty dollars to $75,000 to make one song. Today, according to the Wall Street Journal, that would have taken about $400,000. One song. Makes you appreciate it a little bit more, eh? It's not just a pop song. There's a whole thing that went into that. I love learning those details because now I get to appreciate something in ways I never could have before. But if I'm honest, I don't do this enough with the work of God. I don't look for the details. I don't try to see all the things that are happening in his saving work. We often take the saving work of God for granted. We read our Bibles. We see the stories like, that's really powerful, and then we move on. But I think we need to spend more time digging in, looking at all the nuances, all the power, all the love, all the glory that goes into the work that God is doing in a world, all the work that God has done to bring us to this point. And we just need to worship him and praise him for it. And so today, as we go through Acts 16, uh, what I want us to see is just the amazing salvation work of God. And I want us to be at a place where we're ready to worship him, to praise him for the work that he has done and the work that he is doing. And so if I've done the job I believe I've been called to today, by the time we get to the end of this, we will be praising God for the amazing work that he's doing, having seen all the details in it. Acts 16 is a very interesting passage in Scripture because we have three different accounts of God at work in different kinds of people's lives. And so we get to see the study of how God saves, what he's doing, everything that goes into it. And so let's walk through, starting in verse 6, the amazing salvation work of God. And pay attention to that. Draw our eyes to what God is doing. So, starting in verse 6. Paul and his companions traveled throughout the region of Phrygia and Galatia, having been kept by the Holy Spirit from preaching the word in the province of Asia. When they came to the border of uh, Mysia, they tried to enter Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus would not allow them to. So they passed by Mysia and went down to Troas. 
During the night, Paul had a vision of a man of Macedonia standing and begging him, come over to Macedonia and help us. After Paul had seen the vision, we got ready at once to leave for Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. So the first thing that we see in the amazing salvation work of God is that we, his people, have been invited to be a part of it. God has a plan here. He is at work. He's going to be bringing salvation to the people in Macedonia. He's going to be spreading the salvation work from there, but he's called Paul and his team to be a part of it. He's invited them to be a part of the work that he's doing, and he hasn't just invited them to be a part of it. He's leading them exactly where he wants them to be, to be a part of the work that he's doing. You see, Paul and his team, they have a plan. They have an idea of what they want to do. They're going around, and their idea is they want to go and strengthen some of the churches that are already existed. And so they have this travel plan. But what you see is God keeps them from preaching in the province of Asia, Asia Minor. Then they try to go to Bithynia, and it says the spirit of Jesus would not, allow, would not allow them to. One of the things you'll see as we go through Acts is the Trinity is very rich here. And you even see here the spirit of Jesus, how the Trinity works together, complements each other. But they're trying to go into these different places, and the Holy Spirit is saying, no, that's not where you're going. I have somewhere else for you. And then Paul has this dream, this, this dream of the man from Macedonia begging them to come and help them. And throughout Scripture, cries for help, cries for rescue are linked with salvation, linked with deliverance from God. And so Paul and his team, they get together, they discuss, and they say, okay, that is where we're going. That is where God has called us. We're going to Macedonia. It wasn't their idea. It was God's. But I think what's interesting about this passage is that we don't really get the details of how the Spirit was stopping them from going to those first places, right? If you look here, you get the the map of Paul's missionary journey, and if you can see where that red line is, you can see where he's going, right? He starts off near Jerusalem, near near Israel in the bottom, and he goes up that way, up to to Asia, but in Asia, they weren't allowed, they weren't able to, to preach, and so they try to go north, and they try to go east, but it doesn't work. They try to head towards India that way, but that wasn't God's plan. So instead, they go northwest, across the sea, over to Macedonia. But why? And what's amazing about this passage is we don't get to see the details of how the Holy Spirit stopped them from doing their original plan. It could be any number of ways. It could have been a prophecy. There was a prophet among them. Silas was there. It could have been a prophecy. It could have been God literally couldn't, wouldn't let them cross over the border. They couldn't move. He stopped them from doing it. It could have been an angel with a flaming sword was standing in their way. Maybe they couldn't speak when they were in Asia. We have no idea what happened. The most likely thing most scholars believe it was a, is that it was a combination of oppression from outside forces right, from, from the people not wanting them to be there, not being receptive, and an inward working of the Spirit, but we don't know. 
we often come to this passage, we see the vision, the dream of the man of Macedonia, and we want that in our lives. We want God to be that clear for us, but we don't see the first part where it just says, the Holy Spirit stopped them. And I think the reason Luke writes it this way is we're not supposed to know exactly the process that God went through with Paul and his team, because then we would just be looking for the same thing. I think what we're supposed to see here is that we've been invited into the saving work that God is doing, and we are being led, and so we need to pay attention to the Spirit's leading in our lives. And I think the reality is, even if there was an angel with a flaming sword standing in front of us, most of us wouldn't know until our donkey spoke to us anyway. And so the question we have out of this is not, I need God to show me exactly where to go. How do I know exactly what God wants me to do? But am I paying attention? Am I leaving room to listen to those workings of the Spirit in my life? Am I paying attention to the surroundings around me? Am I listening for the Spirit as I'm working and following God? Am I willing to hold my plans loosely where if I do feel like God's leading me in a certain direction, I'm willing to go that way instead of the way that I wanted? Are you paying attention? Are you listening? Are you asking? Are you talking with the people around you who you trust, saying, I think this is where God is leading me. What do you see? Did you notice that even when they have the vision, when Paul has the vision in, in verse 10, it says, after Paul had seen the vision, we got ready at once to leave for Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. He had the vision, and they talked it over. They concluded together in prayer, in conversation, that this is what the vision meant, and then they went. So often, we're waiting for a sign to show us where to go, and we're just not moving, but that's not what we actually see here. When I was in high school, I went to a youth retreat with my, my youth group, and I had to leave early on the Saturday, I think because I had to, to go play a show or something silly like that. And I drove home alone, and I needed to get gas on the way home. And I'm not a details person when it comes to kind of what I'm doing when I have to follow directions. So I pulled into one entrance of a gas station, filled up, and then went out the other way without realizing what I had done and just started driving down the road. Uh, and I realized I was lost. I didn't know where I was, didn't know how to get home. And so I called my dad. My dad uh, is in the taxi industry in Toronto and part of what you have to do to get your taxi license is read maps really, really well. Um, and so I phoned him. Uh, he and his brother were together in the office. They pulled out a map, and they told me literally, once I was able to tell them the streets I was passing, they told me every turn I had. To, it was a GPS before I had a smartphone. And I think we often wait for that experience in life when it comes to God. We want him to tell us exactly what to do. But I want you to see here that that's not what Paul and his team did. Paul and his team never waited to carry out their primary calling which was to preach the gospel. As they were going, they were still preaching the gospel. They tried to preach the gospel in Asia. They tried to bring the gospel to Bithynia when they were going that way. They never stopped working. The only thing that changed was the location. They didn't need to wait to be told, you need to go and share the gospel. You need to follow Jesus and be obedient and share the good news that you have with other people. They were doing that the whole time. 
David Platt has a, a great sermon on this, this passage about reaching the unreached people groups, and that's his thing. He's so good. I encourage you to go and listen to that sermon. Um, but in that sermon, he says, it is an active obedience to God's will that God directs their steps. They didn't wait to start working. They were working the whole time. And so one of the things we need to understand is we have been called to do the same thing they have, to share the gospel, to love and worship Jesus, and we do that wherever we are. And that might change, and we need to pay attention to the Holy Spirit as he leads us, but we never stop spreading the gospel. We never stop serving the people. We never stop worshiping God wherever we are. We don't wait for direction on that. We've already been told to do that. We're a part of the work that God is doing now And as we figure out where we're meant to go, as we figure out how to serve, we continue to do the work that God has called us to. And then we might find, oh, this is not the place for me. This is not the place where I should be serving. This is not the ministry team I should be on. Maybe this is not the city I should be in, but I'm just going to continue doing what I've done somewhere else now. And so we've been invited to be a part of the amazing salvation work of God And we need to start being a part of that now and listening as we work, as as we are obedient, and we follow Jesus in that. But as we continue, what we're going to find now is those three different people who God is at work in their life in, in Philippi, where they end up. We're going to see three very, very different people and the work that God is doing in their lives. So, let's walk through this from verse 11. From Troas, we put out to sea and sailed straight for Samothrace. And the next day, we went to Neapolis. From there, we traveled to Philippi, a Roman colony in the leading city of that district of Macedonia. And we stayed there several days. So, they end up in Philippi. They cross the sea. They go to Philippi. And what is Philippi? Philippi is a Roman colony, but it's a very significant place. The, the city of Philippi was the location of a great battle. It's actually the place where the people who orchestrated the death of Julius Caesar, Brutus, and Cassius were defeated by Mark Anthony, not the JLo one, the original one, Mark Anthony, and Octavian, who becomes Augustus. And so this is a significant place. This is where God has called them to. It's a Roman colony filled mostly with ex-Roman soldiers. This is not an easy place for them to go to, but it's a significant place in its location, as we're going to talk about in a little while. But here they are in Philippi, and they're looking for, okay, where do we share the gospel? And they look for what most people would look for at that time, They look for a synagogue, but there is no synagogue. So what we see here in verse 13 is, on the Sabbath, we went outside the city gate of the river where we expected to find a place of prayer. Now, it's important to note that if the Jewish people are out at a river worshiping, going through their rituals, it means that there's not a synagogue in the city. And by the law at the time, any city that had at least 10 Jewish men 
was entitled to a synagogue. So the fact that Paul has to go out to the river to find these people who are worshiping God means that there's not 10 families in Philippi who know about God. This is an unreached group of people. There is next to no knowledge about who God is at the time in Philippi when Paul is there and Silas. And so they go out to the river to search for people reading scriptures so that they can share about Jesus. And so it says, we sat down and began to speak to the women who had gathered there. One of those listening was a woman from the city of Thyatira named Lydia, a dealer in purple cloth. She was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to respond to Paul's message. When she and the members of her household were baptized, she invited us to her home. If you consider me a believer in the Lord, she said, come and stay at my house. And she persuaded us. Before I dive into who Lydia is, I want to point out something. Some of you may, may have noticed this, starting in verse 10. But this is the part, we've talked about a little, we've alluded a little bit to this in, in Acts. This is the part where Luke becomes a part of the team. If you notice in verse 10, it switched from they to we, from them to us. Luke is now a part of what is happening. And most scholars believe that Luke is actually from Philippi. And so he's been sent from God to the team to kind of act as somebody who's from the area to help them as they kind of go through these travels. So here, in just this little section of chapter 16, and then we're going to get another one in a few uh, chapters later, we have Luke as part of the story. He's giving us a firsthand perspective, and he talks about this time where they met together with these women by the river who were worshiping God. And there, God saves Lydia of Thyatira. So, why is, this, why is this significant? Who is Lydia? What we see here is that Lydia is from Thyatira, which means she's actually from the other side of the Aegean Sea, which means she's from the province of Asia, most likely. And she's come over from Thyatira to Philippi to act as a dealer for the purple dye that they make in Thyatira. Thyatira was known for this elegant, expensive, fancy purple dye. It was likely the, the color that was used for the Roman uh, togas, the imperial Roman togas. This was a significant industry, and Lydia is a salesperson or a rep or an agent for the, the people back in Thyatira. She goes to Philippi, and she sells to those people there. So she is a successful businesswoman. She has means. She has a, a house that's big enough to, to invite the whole team with Paul back to. She's got a place where the church that's going to be started here in Philippi, where they can have a home base in. She deals these expensive purple dyes. But the other thing that we see here is that she's a worshiper of God, or, or another translation of that would be a God-fearer. And what that usually means in text is that she is a, a pagan, somebody who grew up from outside of the, the Jewish faith, who has begun to read through the Jewish scriptures and worship God, but she hasn't adopted all of the cultural laws. So she's, 
She's seeking God. She's seeking to know who he is. She has questions. She's, she's reading the Hebrew Bible. She, she's trying to, to figure out who this God is, but she hasn't embraced fully the, the Jewish faith. She's a God-fearer, but she's not an Israelite. She's not Jewish. And there she is that day by the river, going through scripture, singing praise, uh, worshiping God, praying with the people there. And Paul and his team show up. And Paul begins to preach. They begin to talk. And it says in verse 14, the Lord opened her heart to respond to Paul's message. The Lord opened her heart to respond to Paul's message. She had been searching for who God is And Paul shows up and delivers the message that God has given him, and God opens up Lydia's heart, and she receives it. God saves Lydia that day. He uses Paul. He uses the team. But it is clearly God who is at work. This past weekend, uh, or I guess this weekend, we're still in the weekend. This weekend, I was at the men's retreat, and a couple people actually asked me, how do you, as a youth pastor, deal with the pressure of, of ministering to the youth? Deal with the pressure of, of seeing them accept the gospel. And, and one, of the reasons, one of the ways that I deal with that is through this, this verse right here. Understanding that it's not me who saves anyone, thank God. Uh, it's God. The Lord opened her heart. The Lord gave the words to Paul. The Lord opened her heart. The Lord saved Lydia. Not Paul, the Lord. And we need to know that as people. It's not us who save people. We bring the gospel out of obedience. We take the words that God has given to us, and then God will use them in the other person's heart. It is God who saves, not us. But the question I think we need to have here is if we've been invited into the amazing saving work of God, how many of us would have been able to have that conversation with Lydia? Somebody who's asking questions, somebody who's already got some knowledge of who God is, but needs more, needs to know about the relationship with Jesus that's available for her, needs to know the forgiveness of sin that is there for her, how many of us would have been able to share the gospel with Lydia that day? How many of us are looking for people like Lydia in our lives that we can share the gospel with, looking for people who are seeking, who have questions? Because if we're called to be a part of what God is doing, then we need to be watching for the opportunities that are in front of us looking for people to share the gospel with, trying to find those people who have questions, and making sure that we're ready to have those conversations when the opportunity is there. God does an incredible thing that day by bringing Lydia and Paul together. And we need to be sure that we're ready for when God calls us to do the same thing. And so there in Philippi, the first thing that we see is God saves Lydia of Thyatira which, if we have the next slide up, is significant as we remember that she is a successful businesswoman, a God-fearer, and that she's seeking. But let's continue on as we go through Acts 16. Starting in verse 16, we see, Once when we were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a female slave who had a spirit by which she predicted the future. 
Now, I want to stop there for a moment. That phrase, she had a spirit by which she predicted the future, actually in Greek says she has a spirit of python in her, which is terrifying. I have a rule in life that says if Indiana Jones is afraid of something, I can be too. So snakes, terrifying. Giant snakes, terrifying. Spirits of giant snakes, awful. But the reason I bring that up is it actually helps us get the picture of what this girl is going through. Um, the idea of the spirit of Python is actually from Greek mythology. So in all honesty, a lot of what I know about Greek mythology at this point in my life has come from the Percy Jackson books. Uh, I had a student in junior high who was like, you should read them. And I was like, okay, this seems like a great opportunity to connect with someone. But also, I really like reading books that are aimed towards junior high kids because it makes me feel so smart. Um, <laughs> so I read them because they're easy and it's nice. You just shut your brain off, you read them. Anyway, um, this, the spirit of Python. So Python is this uh, serpent dragon that guards the oracle of Delphi, one of the most significant oracles in, in the Greek mythology where people would go for, for advice on the future. Um, but the way that it's described is that that spirit of, of Python would just take over a woman and just force her to prophesy. And in the Percy Jackson books, we actually uh, have them in the, Hero of Olympi uh, the Heroes of Olympus, or whatever it's called, the second series. Uh, you have a character who's a, a prophetess, and the spirit of Python would just take over her body. And you literally read these things. as She has zero control over what's happening. It's literally like she stops and just becomes a speaker, and the spirit of Python speaks through her, and then she feels sick and doesn't remember anything that happens. That's the spirit that is taking over this slave woman the spirit of prophecy. She has zero control over what she's saying or doing. She's completely possessed. And so they're walking, going to the, the place of prayer, going to the river to meet the people they've already met, to meet Lydia. And there's this possessed girl predicting the future. And it says, she earned a great deal of money for her owners by fortune telling. So, People found out she had the spirit, and then instead of helping her, they used her to make money. You want your, you want your future? You want a prediction on your life? Come and pay us some money. She'll, she'll give you your future. She followed Paul and the rest of us, shouting, These men are servants of the Most High God who are telling you the way to be saved. She kept this up for many days. Finally, Paul became so annoyed that he turned around and said to the spirit, In the name of Jesus Christ, I command you to come out of her. At that moment, the spirit left her. Just immediately, in the name of Jesus, out. And the spirit goes. Now, I want to talk about this for a second. Why does Paul do this this way? Uh, why doesn't he release her quicker? Why does he do it at this point? Remember, he's in Philippi, Roman colony, all ex-soldiers, almost everybody's pagan. Almost everybody could probably murder you. And he's going to preach the gospel. And so Paul and their team, they don't want unnecessary attention that's going to come through and bring in more obstacles. They are trying to go and preach to the, the people who are down by the river. 
the people who have shown an interest in who God is, to, to take these people who are reading the Hebrew Bible and show them how Jesus is the fulfillment of everything they've been learning, and to cause an uproar in the main Roman city would likely prevent them from being able to do any of that work. But finally, Paul's had enough. Now, what is she doing? She's going around saying, these are servants of the Most High God. They're showing you the way to salvation. It doesn't really sound like a big deal, but this is why I believe Paul finally just says enough. First, it's likely that she was causing a lot of confusion. You see, she doesn't say these are servants of Yahweh. She says these are servants of the Most High God which most Roman Greco people would have assumed was Zeus, right? Showing the way to salvation. Now, most cultures talked about salvation. Now, they don't mean it the way that the truth of the Bible means it, but there's some confusion going through that. Who, who are these people serving? What are they doing? But also, she's drawing all that unwanted attention to Paul and the team who are trying to preach the gospel but most importantly, when we read in the NIV that, that Paul is annoyed, if you look at the Greek, it's actually grieved. And I think a part of this is Paul has finally looked at her and seen everything she's gone through for days, and he just can't take it anymore. He's grieved at the oppression spiritually that she's going under, the exploitation that she's been in by all the social people, and he just says, enough is enough. Get out. Demon and the power of Jesus, get out. And it does. And so here's this girl who has spent probably years oppressed spiritually, oppressed socially, who finally finds freedom. And what is the reaction of the people around her? When her owners realized that their hope of making money was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace to face the authorities. They brought them before the magistrates and said, these men are Jews and are throwing our city into an uproar by advocating customs unlawful for us Romans to accept or practice. They take the guys who set this girl free and brought them to court. Because when that demon was cast out, so was their paycheck. And these men cared more about making money than seeing this girl free. And the culture of Philippi cared more about keeping their customs and culture in place, making sure that they could keep their money, making sure they could keep their way of lives, than seeing someone freed from bondage. They've watched somebody feel the relief of having a demon spirit removed from them, and they're more concerned about their way of life and their money than her. In, in Roman times, the, the Roman Empire controlled what you were allowed to do for worship, what you were allowed to believe. They would allow certain religious beliefs as long as they didn't interfere with the Roman way of life, as long as they didn't interfere with obedience to Caesar. And so Judaism was allowed, it was an ancient religion, it was allowed as long as 
the Jewish teachings never started a rebellion, right? That's why you see when Jesus is crucified, the charges brought to the Romans were Jesus is the king of the Jews. He's starting a rebellion. Now you have to interfere. And so Paul and Silas are brought before the courts because their beliefs are now going counter to the cultural beliefs of the time. And that's something we need to be aware of because I think that is still true today. When I grew up in high school, you could believe whatever you wanted to so long as it fit what the culture told you to believe, as long as it fit what the culture said was acceptable. And I think still to this day, as the world around us see people freed from sin, freed from shame, to hear the church trying to, to care for people, the biggest concern that we see around us is that, okay, you guys can, you can believe what you want to believe so long as you don't disrupt the cultural narrative that we have. So long as your views don't impose on my views of individuality and identity and, and being a good person and, and feeling like I am good because of who I am. As long as we don't push the wrong buttons, we're okay. But as soon as we start to make people feel insecure about what they believe, there's a wall that gets pushed up. And I believe still to this day that there are a lot of people who care more about holding on to their way of life than seeing other people freed from sin and shame and oppression. And as Christians, we need to be able to do what Paul and Silas did and say, watching people freed and experiencing who Jesus is, seeing people come to faith, honoring God and other people is worth the cost of the culture around us calling us violent, oppressors. It's worth the cost of fighting those cultural battles. And so we see, again, through the works that Paul and Silas have been called to, that this possessed girl is freed by Christ. Now, I'll be honest, it doesn't explicitly say that she becomes a Christian, but every single scholar I read, and I read a lot of them, and every single sermon I listened to all say the same thing. This girl was saved, and there are three reasons why this is true. The first is she was freed from a demon. That's an experience you don't just walk away from. You don't just say, thank you, and walk away. There's something real there that she would have figured out, that she would have gone through and said, wow, what did you do? That was amazing. Tell me more. But also, the specific demon that she had was one that was of prophecy, and that demon was shouting, they serve the most high God, and they're talking about salvation. And although the people around them may have been confused, that demon knew exactly what they were saying. The demons always recognized Jesus as the Son of God. They get it. And so that girl would have heard that, and she would have known the truth, and then been set free by it. And then lastly, in the way that Luke writes, he sandwiched this event in between two other cases of salvation, and in the style that he writes, it would mean that they're all related. And so every piece of evidence points to the fact that this girl has been freed from a demon, saved, and is probably now going to be a part of that church in Philippi. But Paul and Silas are arrested, and I want you to see this. It's, it's Paul and Silas who are on trial 
And this is often how it works still today. They're the ones who are on trial, but I want you to see what the culture did. There was more than Paul and Silas there. Why are Paul and Silas on trial? Why is it only them? They're the only two Jewish people there. They picked Paul and Silas because they were different. The culture, the Roman culture that says, oh, our culture's so great, we don't want you to do anything. There's things that you are saying that are against what we as upright citizens believe. The culture is the one that says, okay, but we're going to take the two Jewish guys and we're going to throw them in jail. It's horrible. They care more about themselves and the, what's right. But anyway, we will continue. We're going to go on to the next one. God saves a jailer. Verse 22. The crowd joined in the attacks against Paul and Silas, and the magistrates ordered them to be stripped and beaten with rods. Stripped and beaten with rods because they saved an oppressed woman. After they had been beaten severely... Uh, After they had been severely flogged, they were thrown into prison, and the jailer was commanded to guard them carefully. When he received these orders, he put them in the inner cell and fastened their feet in the stocks. So, Paul and Silas, stripped naked, humiliated in front of everybody, beaten with rods, thrown into the, the most secure part of a jail, and then had their feet put in stocks, which would have been incredibly uncomfortable. It was like a minor form of torture. It, would allow you, it wouldn't allow you to sleep well because you can't move around. It would be incredibly uncomfortable. They're thrown into that situation. And then we see this. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the other prisoners were listening to them. Suddenly there was such a violent earthquake that the foundations of the prison were shaken. At once all the prison doors flew open and everyone's chains came loose. The jailer woke up and when he saw the prison doors open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself because he thought the prisoners had escaped. But Paul shouted, don't harm yourself, we are all here. I'm going to pause there for a moment again. We often read over that and we see the the miraculous wonder that happens, but I really want to bring us into the mindset of that jailer for just a moment. Imagine what that jailer is expecting to hear that night. Paul and Silas have been embarrassed, beaten, thrown in jail. They weren't, their cuts weren't even treated yet. And I think what the jailer is expecting to hear is something a little bit like, Uh, what we see in Shawshank Redemption, the movie, well, the the short story, but then movie uh, by Stephen King. And if if you've ever seen it, you see these words read as he's narrating, talks about this, about the first night in prison. He said, when those bars slam home, that's when you know it's for real. Old life blown away in the blink of an eye, nothing left but all the time in the world to think about it. Most new fish come close to madness that first night. Somebody always breaks down crying. Happens every time. The only question is, who's it going to be? Paul and Silas, falsely thrown into prison, falsely beaten, falsely humiliated, that jailer is expecting them to break down. And at midnight, he hears them praising God. 
imagine the questions that would have been going through his mind. How are they doing this? Why are they praising God after everything they've been through? And as he's thinking through these things, he drifts to sleep, and there's an earthquake. And he wakes up, and the doors are open. And he thinks that everybody has run away, so he does what any Roman soldier would have done, because to face the shame of what has happened would have been too much. See, the penalty for, for allowing prisoners to escape was death anyway, but to face the shame, he decided, well, I'll just do it faster. He thinks they've all run away, and then Paul cries out, don't harm yourself, we're all still here. And so he stops, he goes before Paul and Silas, and he bows down. The jailer called for lights, rushed in, and fell trembling before Paul and Silas. He then brought them out and asked, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? An important question. What must I do to be saved? But why does he ask them? What led to this? And I think it's a whole combination of things that he's witnessed throughout that day. He's, he's heard the prophecies of, of this girl who was possessed and, and what she was saying about them, that they're serving the Most High God and they're showing the way to salvation. He would have known because they were thrown in for that what had happened. He's heard them worshiping and praying to God in the midst of everything they're going through. And then to top it all off, there's an earthquake, the doors are open, the chains are loosed, and they stay there and keep everybody else there as well. And I think he knows something. Why didn't Paul and Silas run away? They weren't guilty anyway. Technically, they wouldn't even be doing something wrong. Why didn't they run away? And I think the reason why they didn't run away is because that miracle wasn't for Paul and Silas. It was for the jailer and the people in Philippi, to see and experience the saving work of God, to see the fullness of God in those two individuals. They stayed because they were concerned for his life. If they ran, he would have been dead. They stayed because they knew they were innocent. They didn't have to prove anything. They stayed because they're not in need of anything. They have God, and that is enough for them the jailer saw these two worshipers of God and said, what do you have that I don't have? How are you doing these things? Why is everything you're doing different than what I would have been doing? How can I be saved like you? And I think the question that comes out of this for us is how many people in this room have lives where somebody would look at us and say, what are you doing that's different than me? How can I be saved like you are? What does our life say about the God that we worship and love? What are other people seeing? Are we living lives that lead people to say, how can I be saved like you? And he asked that question, and they reply, believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved, you and your household. Then they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all the others in the house, at that hour of the night, the jailer took them and washed their wounds, finally, changed life at this point. Then immediately, he and all his household were baptized. The jailer brought them into his house and set a meal before them. He was filled with joy because he had come to believe in God, he and his whole household. God saved the jailer. They, 
God saved Paul, God saved Silas, and he put them in a position where the jailer would see God through them. And then the next thing as we close this is what we're going to see is God establishes a church in Philippi. In verse 35, when it was daylight, the magistrates sent their officers to the jailer with the order, release those men. The jailer told Paul, the magistrates have ordered that you and Silas be released. Now you can leave and go in peace. But Paul said to the officers, they beat us publicly without a trial, even though we are Roman citizens and threw us into prison. Whoops. They may have been Jewish, but they are also Roman citizens. They didn't bother to ask. And it was a very serious offense for anyone in the Roman Empire to beat a Roman citizen without a trial. They made a big mistake. And Paul says, and now do they want to get rid of us quietly? No. Let them come themselves and escort us out. The officers reported this to the magistrates, and when they heard that Paul and Silas were Roman citizens, they were alarmed. They came to appease them and escorted them from the prison, requesting them to leave the city. After Paul and Silas came out of the prison, they went to Lydia's house, where they met with the brothers and sisters and encouraged them. Then they left. Why didn't Paul and Silas just go? Why make a big deal? Because they didn't do anything wrong. They made sure that the magistrates came so that they and all of the people in Philippi knew that Paul and Silas were innocent. They stayed so that the word of God wouldn't be tarnished as these criminals in Philippi came and they preached the word of God and then they snuck out in the middle of the day someday. No, they waited and said, listen, there's been an injustice here and it's been done by you. And we want everyone to know that this church in Philippi has been started by the truth, started by people who follow God, started by people who care about the people in your city more than you people do. You have to come and bring us out so that everybody knows that we are innocent and we have been wronged here. And most importantly, they did that so that that church in Philippi would be seen as a place of people who are in the right so that the other people knew that they couldn't just oppress this church of believers, but the, the, the believers had done nothing wrong but care for people and follow God. And so they say, no, we're not leaving quietly. You come so that everybody sees what is right. And the church of Philippi was established there. And so we've seen the amazing work of God, the amazing salvation work of God, but I want to highlight it so that as we worship we see these things. First of all, I want to point you to the fact that in this passage, God saves Lydia, he saves the slave girl, and he saves the jailer. Three very different people in very different ways, and yet God grabs a hold of all of their lives. We have Lydia, the, success, the successful businesswoman with means. We have the slave girl who's coming to them with nothing. Every penny she ever earned went to somebody else. She was oppressed by a demon. And we have the jailer, the ex-soldier, the pagan, the Roman citizen. John Stott in his commentary, he writes this, it is hard to imagine a more dissimilar group than the, than the businesswoman, the slave girl, and the jailer. Racially, socially, psych and psychologically, they were worlds apart. Yet all three were changed by the same gospel and welcomed into the same 
church. That is the saving work of God, bringing all of these people together under his love. But I also want to point to this. God saves, and here we get the gospel in Macedonia. You see, why go northwest? You know, God sent other people east. Right? We have Peter doing some work that way. We have Thomas going out that way. Why Macedonia? If we go to the next slide, you'll see the map of the Roman Empire. And it might be hard to see, but if you look at and you try to find where Israel is, kind of right beside Arabia, and they go northwest across the Aegean Sea to where Macedonia is, they are headed towards Rome. The gospel is moving towards the heart of the Roman Empire, the heart of the Roman culture, where change is going to happen. Not too long from now, there is going to be a Christian emperor in Rome. And they're heading towards Europe, which will become the first Christian continent. From Europe, you have mission trips to Africa, Latin America, North America, Oceania, uh, East Asia. God saves the people in Philippi. He starts a church that's going to move towards Rome and move towards Europe. And God is going to bring his gospel everywhere. Many of us here have European ancestry and are saved because of the work of European churches that God has done through those churches. Many of us in this room can tie us here in the gospel to that church back in Philippi. That is incredible. In fact, if you go to the next slide, you can still see the road that Paul and Silas and the team would have taken from the sea to Philippi. You can still walk it to this day. It's the same gospel that saved those three back in Philippi when Paul was there. It's the same gospel that saves us now, and it's the same gospel that's going to continue, that's spread throughout the world. The saving work of God starts off in this little church with these unlikely people, and it just keeps going throughout Europe that way, and through the other apostles, other places. God is saving people throughout the world, and he continues to do so today. As we see the amazing saving work of God, we see that God saved those people in Philippi. I see that God saved me. God's saving people now, and he continues to save people, and so we join in that work, and we worship and praise him for it. Let's pray. God, we thank you that you are a God who saves, that you are a God who loves, that you are a God who draws people into your mercy and your grace from every area of the world, from every social standing, every kind of person. We thank you that we've been invited to be a part of your work. We thank you for your love and your mercy and your grace. We thank you for your son. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.